Hello, hello. Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. As I mentioned last time, the Brain Trust here realized that that might be a more descriptive name than our previous one, the Journey on Podcast. I'm Dave Spelser. The bulk of the source material we look at on the Pocket Contemplative comes from a wide swath of contemplative thinking, from great teachers from throughout the world to neuroscientists, really anyone who can help us. But every now and again, I enjoy playing on my pastor roots and approaching some of the big questions we talk about here by way of a deep dive into some swath of the Bible to see how it might encourage us to think about some big question, an approach that will either be particularly helpful or particularly triggering to folks who spend a lot of time in churches. There's no doubt it can feel a little more classically religious than some of what we are otherwise up to here. But, you know, I suppose that speaks to that part of me in ways I sometimes enjoy. So anyway, to encourage or forewarn you, that's largely what we will be doing here, but maybe in an unexpected way. So a question that sometimes comes up in the groups I'm a part of is the connection between the contemplative life and all that stillness and silence and quiet that comes with that, and the earnest, open-hearted type of faith that talks about things like loving Jesus and being loved by God and enjoying God's goodness and things along those lines, which by no means seem opposed to the contemplative meditative stuff, but don't seem exactly to be the same thing either. And many people who've enjoyed that innocent, earnest faith find that the suffering that comes with life for everyone as we age makes it hard to keep that earlier approach. That said, I love that earnest, heartfelt stuff, and I thought I'd kick around just a bit today about what it might look like for all of this to coexist in one person, and whether for the person who's had some suffering, which has made those, early, those earlier spiritual experiences perhaps seem more distant, we'll consider whether there might be some value in keeping them in mind. I'll have a few stories and a brief consideration of how this approach worked for Harriet Tubman. And as promised or forewarned, I will take a shot at a dive into this famous stretch of John's gospel where Jesus kicks those questions around as well. Before we get started, I'll mention that if you like the sort of spirituality we talk about here, you might really enjoy trying out a weekly online group I help host around these things with folks from around the country and beyond. We have four groups on Sundays at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, on Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Why not check one out? Also, if you're the sort of person who would enjoy a Sunday service experience in this spirit, perhaps enjoying a look at the Bible, much as I'll kick around on today's podcast, we've just started them on the third Sundays of each month at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. For login information on any of this, email connect at journey-on.net, connect at journey-on.net. Okay, kick us off, Ryan Hood, for Don't Jettison the Good Parts of Faith. I find my mind drifting to a memorable night right after I had graduated from college. Some enthusiastic, earnest friends and I moved across town to what was then a very rough neighborhood. It had had the highest per capita murder rate in the nation the previous year. And we were hoping to start a Christian ministry to kids there that might be able to offer hope and resources in a helpful way. And the ministry is still around all these years later, doing some tremendous things. My daughter, for instance, volunteered there just last summer and had her own memorable experiences bringing the circle of life back around. So I was there in two different stretches for two years, and that was enough time to have quite a few stories of my own. So in the midst of a sea of powerful experiences, a scary one comes to mind. So one night, the a uh, ministry household I was living in, the gang that was trying to get this thing started, had a contentious conversation about how we were doing and where we should go next. And I felt all churned up. And when I feel churned up to this day, I'm really helped by taking a walk. So I headed out of the house to pray while walking, which ordinarily would have been an excellent idea. But it was midnight 
And again, this was back in the bad old days of that city when it was the murder capital of the U.S. I wasn't paying much attention. And before I knew it, I realized it was in a part of town I didn't know a whole lot about, which was not a good idea there, particularly at that time of night. And then I also realized that there appeared to be a gathering of young men, maybe 20 yards from me, catty corner across the street. And they were looking at me, and that seemed like that might be a problem. And so I was trying to think, what are my options? I could try to just turn around and hope they don't chase me because I'm not very fast. I could just kind of ignore them and keep walking and go right past them and then worry about how I was going to get past them going the other way to get back home later. And while I was trying to figure out what to do, my problem was solved because they walked over to me. And uh, and the one man started talking friendly enough initially, but then they all started hitting me for reasons I wasn't quite sure. And then they really started hitting me, and then I wasn't sure if I saw a knife, and suddenly I was balled up, and I was being hit quite a bit. And I had this amazing experience. I really had a sense that the Holy Spirit, to use religious language, but that's what it felt like, was filling me up and just promising me it was going to be okay. I felt such peace despite what was happening to me. I mean, I lost a tooth in that little encounter, for instance. But as I felt that, suddenly the first man who'd spoken to me stopped everyone. He said, hey, 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 stop, get off him, get off him. What are we doing here? What has he ever done to us? Let him alone. And that was sort of the end of the story, except I had other adventures trying to find my way home that night. I felt sort of like Ulysses in the Odyssey, but I ultimately made it back. So I bring that story up because I don't know about you, but whatever might be true about any additional spiritual tools I've picked up since that story, I mean, that thing is pretty useful. It would seem helpful to keep whatever that Holy Spirit thing is around and not to jettison it too quickly. That sort of close, earnest, heartfelt, maybe innocent connection to Jesus, or if you'd prefer to God, has its own long history in Christian spirituality, so much so that in a lot of places, this sort of intimacy, this experience of God being so close and present and communicative, isn't just a frill, but is a defining characteristic, something close to the point of being alive. It shows up in some really inspiring places. So I think of these, this wonderful recent movie of about a year ago about Harriet Tubman, whom, you'll remember, was famous for freeing slaves, even as she herself had been a slave. A big part of that movie, called Harriet, as it had been for Tubman, was about how central her intimate relationship with God was in making it possible to do all the amazing things she did. I would play a clip to demonstrate this, but it's mostly visuals. So that said, God would directly speak to her about, for instance, what route she should take so she wouldn't be captured. So you would get in the movie things like dramatic scenes about her leading multiple generations of her family to freedom, with God telling her that they all need to cross a big river when none of them can swim, things like that. Now, that said, as much as that closeness, that chattiness has served me, I have mentioned to some of you that it hit limits for me when my life took on more stress than I had experienced to that point, and those tools by themselves didn't turn out to be sufficient to deal with that level of stress. And I know a fair number of people for whom that's been their story too, as, as life so often does, their lives get hard. And I was so helped by learning about the kind of contemplative spirituality we talk about here in our online groups. And I was also so served by the broad-mindedness you find in great contemplatives like Thomas Merton, who learned so much from sages from outside his Catholic tradition, like Thich Nhat Hanh. I've always loved to learn, and suddenly a whole world of new things I could learn about God and spirituality opened up for me, which has been a remarkably encouraging and inspiring and most of all helpful gift. Still, those things can seem to be pretty different. 
Jesus has a lot to say about stuff along these lines in John's gospel in a four-chapter stretch that's been called his farewell discourse in chapters 14 through 17. In John, it turns out that a big part of the point of Jesus' coming and the gift he wants to leave his followers is to empower intimacy between God and us. And then that intimacy between all of us who care about this stuff. And Jesus pitches that that level of intimacy is what brings together questions like those I just wondered about. So just to take a little tour, I suppose, here are a few observations and suggestions that Jesus hits in that famous discourse. Here's the first one. At first blush, intimacy with God turns out to be the ballgame, as I've just said. At first blush, intimacy with God turns out to be the ballgame. Throughout these chapters, Jesus talks about how God will talk to us and love us and make sure we get to share a home with God and will blaze a path for us and will teach us how to be friends with God and each other. Like here's a characteristic passage from John 14, 26, and 27. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So again, there are all sorts of promises of ongoing communication and direction. And in a way that seems to involve all the persons of God, the Father sends the Holy Spirit, who then does all the communicating, which turns out to be communication about the things on Jesus's mind and so on. And then the consequence of this, we're told, is peace. So for instance, the other day, my heart was trouble, the thing it's not supposed to be. I've mentioned to some of you that I'm surprisingly moody behind my generally stoic demeanor. Often my internal world is pretty calm, but regularly a mood blows through that feels bad, but can feel hard to parse out. Is what I'm feeling dread? Is it anxiety? Is it something else? Again, whatever it is, it feels bad. And for most of my life, when a mood like that has come my way, I've spent the next however long trying to suppress it or argue with it or figure out what exactly it's trying to tell me about how it is that I'm doomed. But the other day, I had a different experience. I asked God for advice in my bleak mood. Just a note, I am not speaking about things here like real depression, and I'm by no means suggesting that counseling isn't a great choice along those lines. But in my case, moodiness seems to fit the bill. And in this case, it felt as if God responded back to me something like, or, Dave, alternatively, you could just regard this as a mood that's just passing through. Let's learn from the contemplatives, right, he said. They talk about getting behind our thoughts and emotions as if they're just clouds passing through an otherwise sunny sky. As if, if we just notice them but don't engage with them, they'll just keep drifting past. So whether or not you might have to feel a little less than chipper for a little while, or perhaps the mood will drift past a lot faster than that, I felt God told me, Dave, you can handle it fine. So just name it and notice it and don't engage with it and you'll be fine. And that's what happened. Really useful for me. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. That's sort of what happened to me. And will remind you of everything I have said to you. That happened to me. My peace I give you, which happened. Do not let your hearts be troubled or not be afraid, which worked. It seemed to be a way that the intimacy with Jesus that's so promised in uh, the passage here connected with contemplative practice in a wonderful way. Here's a second point that I think Jesus brings up in the farewell discourse. Evidently, intimacy with God helps us give the world whatever it is that we have to give. Evidently, intimacy with God helps us give the world whatever it is we have to give. This is from chapter 15. I am the true vine, famous passage from Jesus, and my father is the gardener. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. The other day, as I was thinking about these deep questions and about what remained so helpful to me about Jesus, even as my experience of faith and life has gone through so many consequential changes, in the end, how does this raw, raw enthusiasm for God age with us when we've gone through hardship, when we're not callow, eager kids anymore? So I asked my wife Grace about her thoughts because I knew this would go to a profound place in her. And I did my best to transcribe lots of what she said, which included things like this. And I think I'm quoting. She said, look, the gift of God is God. I'm not a Christian because I need my life to be perfect. I want to go through life with Jesus. He's good company. I need a friend and coach and loving father. Any of our parents may not have had enough to give us to set us on a good, successful course. But Jesus can give us that and then really see us and name things in us. Jesus often says things to encourage me. You can do this. I believe in you. So Grace has taught English as a second language occasionally. A couple of years back, she got assigned a kind of class she had never taught before, and it scared her. The workload to figure it out seemed overwhelming, and the challenge of being a good teacher to these beginning students seemed hard or impossible. But as she did her intimacy with God thing, God encouraged her to hang in there and not bail, and it became one of her best ESL experiences. Again, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Evidently, intimacy with God helps us give the world whatever it is we have to give. Here's another point, I think, that comes up from Jesus in the farewell discourse along these lines. As we pray, in a surprise, this intimacy itself turns out to be a lot of the power we discover. As we pray, in a surprise, this intimacy itself turns out to be a lot of the power we discover. Again, from chapter 15, I chose you, says Jesus, and appointed you so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. So one of the surprising things Jesus talks about in this section is about these big promises that seem to be easily disproved that, for instance, whatever we ask God in Jesus' name, we're going to get. That seems like one of the features of youthful, earnest faith that doesn't age well. But throughout the farewell discourse, Jesus seems to hint at something unexpected along these lines, which is that as we ask God for things in Jesus' name, seeming to mean in the rich reality of close connection to Jesus— the thing we most seem to get in response is more of that close connection by way of the thing we're asking God about. I think back to Grace's comment. I'm not a Christian because I need my life to be perfect. I want to go through life with Jesus. He's good company. I need a friend and coach and loving father. Another point I think comes up. In all this, Jesus promises that hard times will absolutely come, and this intimacy will remain hugely important when they do. In all of this, Jesus promises that hard times will absolutely come, and this intimacy will remain hugely important when they do. From chapter 16, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. So that's extreme and clearly will likely have applied more to Jesus' immediate disciples than to you or to me. But Jesus' bigger point is along the lines of, look, while he answers many prayers, in the big picture, he's not trying to shield us from the major suffering that comes to all lives, which I think is sort of a surprise. We talked a bit about this um, not long ago, but of course, the obvious follow-up then is, well, what's so great about this friendship with God we're being offered if it doesn't get us out of suffering? And the answer to that seems to be along the lines of, well, give it a try on these terms, and you tell me. I think you'll be pretty happy for it in good times or bad. A few years back, being irrationally scared of going to doctors, 
I put off dealing with what turned out to be a ruptured appendix until I was told it should already have killed me. And then the scene at the hospital, once I finally got admitted, was crazy. They thought they'd found a surgeon for me, but then he disappeared. And then my pain took a major turn for the worse, and they went hunting for some pain medication for me, literally wheeling me around in the OR as they looked for it, which, it being a hospital and all, you would think they would have access to, but they couldn't find it. And suddenly I found myself praying one of the few parts of the Bible I'd actually memorized. Back in some conservative Christian days, I had been encouraged to memorize the Bible. I never quite got around to it, but I had remembered the 23rd Psalm. And I found myself believing pretty much all of it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack for nothing. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid because you're preparing a feast for me. And suddenly, as in my experience in this uh, rough town, I felt overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. And it seemed to me that whether I lived or died through this, even though I'd been so cavalier about getting to the hospital, I was going to be fine. If I crossed to the other side, I felt very confident there was a feast waiting for me. And it was very encouraging. The the surprise to the young me was that this intimacy wasn't necessarily the thing that would ward off suffering, but it could be a pretty outstanding companion to the suffering I was going through. And that's the Harriet Tubman story, right? Clearly, she lived through astounding traumas that God didn't solve for her. And yet her living out what Jesus is teaching in the farewell discourse is why we know her today. Another tidbit from the farewell discourse. Evidently, experiencing this intimacy turns out to be the same thing as eternal life. Evidently, experiencing this intimacy turns out to be the same thing as eternal life from John 17. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus tells us that as we learn to do this, what we'll experience will feel more and more, at least in these faltering moments, like joy and peace. And it turns out those are the defining characteristics of this famous thing we're told all of our hearts crave called eternal life. This is the thing you want. In an earlier part of the discourse, Jesus famously calls himself the way, which in this context seems to be telling us that on the journey of our life, traveling in close connection to him turns out to be the thing itself. He is the way. He is the journey. He is the mode of life our hearts are yearning for. It seems to me we all want the benefits of ever-growing spirituality, of, in the C.S. Lewis phrasing, going further up and farther in, which I think will inevitably involve becoming the sort of contemplatives that the great saints mostly are, and which we'll find ourselves learning from sources we never expected to learn from. But the best blend seems also to involve keeping a sort of guilelessness, an open-hearted innocence, a gee whiz isn't God amazing part of ourselves as well. As if the best part about knowing God kind of remains knowing God. So let's believe God for that kind of innocence combined with the sort of growth and maturity we all want. Now, how to pull that off, of course, is the trick. But I suppose my heart here today is mostly to cheerlead for this sort of intimacy, as if Jesus's fundamental advice is along the lines of, how can we get this intimacy from God? Well, we can want it, we can go after it, And then we can see what happens, and we can keep learning all the great things we're learning, or some such thing. I would imagine that was a good part of Harriet Tubman's method. A book I've often recommended, and that has been very inspirational to me along these lines, is Brother Lawrence's book, The Practice of the Presence of God, where he encourages us to pursue what he calls a continual conversation with God, a conversation which, interestingly and on point for us, he says is often conducted through silence. So it's chatty and it's silent, kind of brings some things together. Okay, one final connection to the Harriet Tubman story. As the movie portrays it, 
This intimacy with God, her deep connection, only gets stronger and stronger to the point that she becomes a modern-day Joan of Arc. Joan, you might remember, was this French peasant young woman who got directed by God to lead the armies of France to drive out English invaders of the era. And with God's direction, that very improbable thing actually happened. Well, as God keeps directing Harriet Tubman, ultimately she ends up leading a regiment in the Civil War. This escaped slave woman leads a regiment in the Civil War until she leads what's now known as the Combahee River Raid, in which more than 700 slaves got free. Now, apparently, Harriet Tubman never had money throughout her life, to a great degree, because she kept putting what money crossed her path back into the abolitionist movement. Um, though she became an in-demand speaker, never had any money. So hardships were always a part of her story. But this abiding in the vine with Jesus built a story in her that is now being talked about as being so powerful, it's worth putting her on the $20 bill, which is under heavy discussion, as I'm sure you know. So on my end, three cheers for a rich contemplative life that exists right smack dab inside a world of deep intimacy with Jesus. For all the abundant benefits I've gotten from my decades of trying to experience God, this feels like a pretty great one. Hey, thanks for joining me for this episode of The Pocket Contemplative. I will see you soon. <laughs>